Whenever I prepare the show, I often picture in my head the people who are listening, you, right now. I have all these pictures, different kinds of people with their own daily life, and some of them probably live in Berlin, others maybe just know it. You got the kinds who, who probably go often, but yet are always up for learning a little more. Then there's another group. They Maybe they haven't been to Berlin, but they're aware that there is something to all the talk about how special the atmosphere is and all the ideas and the projects that seem to take flight there. And then I wonder, what can this podcast do for all these different groups out there? And of course, all those other groups I, I haven't even thought of yet. The first thing that comes to mind is to share experiences, to bring you the individuals that are living the life and that can tell you honestly about the ups and yes, the downs when it comes to moving your life to Berlin and pursuing that which is important to you. That could be work, social life, or maybe it's far simpler like doner kebab or club mate. Whatever the case, on today's program, we're diving into the immigrant experience, or as some call it, the expat experience. Uh, honestly, I'd rather call it the story of one human who arrived at a decision not long ago that Berlin was the town he wanted to live in, and he started in the process of making it a reality. Today, we look at that process. From Wikimedia Deutschland, I'm Mark Fonseca Renderu, and this is Source Code Berlin. Each year, thousands of people move their lives to Berlin in search of something that this city, above all other places, seems to have. The search may be different for each person, but on today's program, we will hear from free software company director and community manager Paul Adams, who moved in 2014 from the UK to Berlin in search of, well, uh, let's ask Paul. Paul, why did you make this move? Uh, well, I, I first came to Berlin in 2006, um, maybe early 2007. I was working on a research project that was funded by the European Commission. And I was uh, working for a company in the London area. And uh, uh, one of the partners in that project had, a, had an office here in Berlin. It happens to be the company that I now work for. And, uh, you know, we, we were partnered up on this project and... Um, this required me to come to Berlin for a couple of meetings. And I think pretty much the first time I came to Berlin, late 2006, early 2007, um, you know, forget, forget free software, forget open source. Just in general, this was, this was real boom time in Berlin. It was an awesome, awesome time to be in and around the city. And it, the, the place had an, uh, an incredible vibe. And, um, I, you know, I said then, right then on this, this, this first trip when I came to Berlin, um, um, I'm going to move here someday. Uh, it just it just took seven or eight years to pull my finger out and get around to doing it. And, you know, like I said, it was nothing to do with open source. It was nothing to do with my work. It was just, um, it was actually completely the opposite. The reason I liked it so much was because I'm the kind of person who likes uh, a bit of balance in my life. And, and you know, I, I do the geek stuff by day because it's my job and I de dedicate plenty of time to it, you know, outside of my job as well. Uh, but, you know, I'm a big fan of the, the arts in their various forms. And, and you know, there's you're going to have to look very hard to find a place that's, you know, for want of a better word, artier uh, than, than, than Berlin. And I just, I thought the place was wonderful. I still do. And so um, really it wasn't nothing work related. I just, I, it, it felt like home immediately because of its, uh, you know, it's, it's art leaning nature. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, uh, the amount of time I was spending here since that first trip was going, you know, ever increasing until, 2014 when I was <clears throat> I'd basically spent half of the year here uh, before I actually moved in uh, uh, in uh, early July and you know it's this this thing of I, I had given you know all of my life to living in the UK um, uh, 20 years of that to living in central Scotland uh, and, and when you're splitting your life between the area you grew up in and, and half of your time being spent in somewhere completely new, it's kind of, if work allows, if life allows, you know, why would you stay in the place you grew up in? So it was the right time and Berlin was definitely the right place for me. So, uh, you know, even without talking about free software, there was plenty of reasons why to come here. I, I didn't need any 
paperwork. I didn't need permission to leave the UK. I didn't need permission to enter Germany as an EU citizen. It's, uh, it's actually really very easy. Um, I, <clears throat> there's always issues around things like, you know, taxation back home and taxation in the, com- the country you're moving to and stuff like this. And that, that always happens from country to country. It's easier inside Europe because of, of the freedom to work and the freedom of citizens to move around. I mean, uh, uh, Europeans moving around Europe, I guess, is, is kind of similar to Americans moving from state to state in, in, in the USA. Uh, and so uh, there's really not too much uh, bother. Um, you know, the process was made slightly easier by the fact that you know, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I work in senior management these days, which meant in the UK um, I had to file very specific tax paperwork, which meant my life was easier by having my own accountant. And so, you know, when I said I was going to leave the country, I got my accountant to talk to the tax office to clear off all my tax stuff. Um, so really, by the time I actually moved here, I was all, you know, I was all square as far as the UK tax office was concerned. So. so it all sounds very exciting and inspiring. And of course, as you mentioned, you're an EU citizen. So that makes things go. It seems like it would make things go a lot more smoothly. But let's get specific, uh, especially for anyone out there thinking, hey, I might do similar. Uh Paul, when you arrived in Berlin and you took those first few steps into the world of bureaucracy, you hit something of a wall, I believe. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, the German government need to know that you're in Germany, which is, that's fair enough. Uh, you know, that's, I have to admit, that's an unreasonable request. Um, and, and the, you know, they need to know this for taxation and for social security and a few other reasons. Um, now, in the UK, I guess it's slightly different if you're somebody who's who's uh, immigrating to the UK. Um, but in general, in the UK, if if I move home, um, I obviously need to tell the local authority I have moved home, and and my local taxation needs to happen here rather than there. Uh, that's a phone call. I phone up the local authority, say hello, I'm now here, and it takes about five minutes to do it over the phone. No problem. Uh, this is not the case in Germany. You have to go and make an appointment at the local Bürgeramt, which is the the I think literally translates as the the, the citizens' office. And uh, this is a place where you have to go and say, hey, here I am. And you have to fill in some paperwork to say, hey, here I am. And uh, um, the experience you can have varies between uh, between different offices and probably even between different cities. And uh, yeah, for me, this was the <laughs> this was the part of the process which really wasn't as easy as perhaps it should have been. Um, I uh, the 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 month I moved here, they um, they changed their policy almost entirely across Berlin. I think there's about twenty of these offices in the city. And they, they completely changed their policy so that um, with the exception of two different offices, you had to now pre-book. You couldn't just turn up. Uh, the thing they don't tell you, or at least they didn't tell me, was that uh, whenever you move home or whenever you arrive in Germany for the first time, you have two weeks to register. And this is weird sort of... You know, um, I, I, I can't even describe how it makes you feel when you move to a country for the first time. Um, you're told you need to register within two weeks, but then you're told you can't have an appointment for over a month. Uh, <laughs> you must you must register in two weeks. By the way, the next appointment's in six weeks' time. So I I tried to register at one of these these offices. There's two offices where you can just turn up. And uh, and this was really kind of like where the fun of the process really began for me. You, you learn all sorts of cultural things when you turn up to the Bürgeramt, I found. Uh, uh, the, the, the first time I went, um, I knew the office opened at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I was told, uh, a colleague of mine said, oh, yeah, if it opens at 8, you turn up at 8. And I did. And I, I ended up joining the queue of people who, so basically you had to queue to get a number and then they would call your number at some point. So, you know, I ended up, uh, I ended up with, I don't know what, it was like 140 something. If you actually, if you look through my Twitter, you'll see me take a picture of the ticket. So I ended up like, I have like ticket 140 or something like that. And uh, and I wait around all day. And at the end of the day, we're, we're about five minutes before four o'clock when I knew the office was going to shut and and my ticket came up 
and uh, I'm just about to get into the elevator, which takes me up one floor to the actual office, when uh, I meet a guy coming out of the elevator who says, sorry, sorry, we're closed. Uh, that's that's as done for the day. And I was, you know, this is kind of like, well, that was a waste of my day. I'll come back the next day. So I, I come back the next day, and I, this time I'm like, okay, I'm not messing around. I'm, I'm taking this. I'm taking this serious. There's no way I'm waiting till eight o'clock before I turn up. I figure I'll beat the crowd. I'll turn up at like six. <laughs> so this was in a this was in a shopping center. Right? This is in one of the shopping arcades. So, I, so what I did was I turned up at six, and my, my first cultural lesson was that. Uh, um, uh, Germans don't know how to queue, or at least Germans don't queue in the same way that Brit- British people queue. Queuing is a hobby, or even a you know it's a, it's a lifestyle choice in the UK. Um, you don't you don't mess around with queuing. So it, it was interesting to get to the shopping centre, which of course at six in the morning is completely locked up, and uh, and uh, it, there was just a crowd. There was no orderly queue. I mean, my entire sense of Britishness was very offended by a crowd. Um, and, and so, of course, as more and more people join the crowd, you can feel the pressure rising. You can feel the heat as people start pushing forward a little bit. People are edging towards the door as we get towards eight o'clock. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking, at the time, I'm looking around and, and I look at this crowd of people and there's, I don't know, there's like, there's like 40 people. And it's, it's almost time. And I knew there was another entrance to the building. And about 10 minutes before the building was, was due to open, a guy, uh, a guy turns up who is both – this guy was truly evil, but he was, also, he was also like my best friend that I had never met because what he did was he was wearing some kind of uniform. I think he worked for security at the Bifau Gay or something like this. this is like you know the transport system. He had some kind of security job, and he turned up and puts his arms in the air and says something along the lines of, "There's another, there's another entrance. You would be better off going there." At which point, half of the crowd disappear, and I was about to go with them until I noticed that this guy had stayed. He hadn't gone anywhere. Uh, <laughs> So he managed to clear away half of the crowd uh, uh, and, and thus, you know, improve everyone's chances of, of getting served. Uh, so, you know, I felt bad for the people who had been duped into leaving. But, you know, the guy, at the same time, the guy was my hero. So we clear half the crowd and uh, the door gets opened. And only it's only one little door. It's not like they opened all the doors to the shopping center. They open one door. And much to my relief as a British person, we all start filing through in this nice single file. I mean, a, a queue was very naturally formed. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the, we, we stay in single file. We're going, snaking our way through the, the, uh, the shopping center to an escalator, which, which takes us up to the first floor of the building, which is where you go and get your ticket. Uh, at which point the true Brit in me came out. Now, you know, Brits love to queue, um, but the, the other thing that's good about being British is knowing when to not queue or when you can break the queue. Uh, so I'm in this queue, and I'm, I'm, I knew it was a half day. The office wasn't open all that day, so I really wanted to optimize uh, my position in the queue, and I knew there was other people coming from some other entrance. And so uh, uh, <laughs> I, uh, while everyone else was going up the up escalator, everyone was ignoring the down escalator. So, so I ran up the down escalator and left half the crowd behind me. So I, I ran up the down escalator and, and get back into the queue. And I sort of, I sanity check this by looking around to make sure there's no, you know, no disabled people, no pregnant women, nothing like this. Uh, and, 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 you know, people start grunting at me in, in, in German. And I sort of put my headphones in my ears, you know, la, 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 sorry, can't hear you. Don't understand what you're saying <laughs> um and uh, eventually I, I i get there and this you know this day i end up with like ticket 40 something uh you know i'm 100 places up the queue better than i was the day before and i feel pretty good about this i think yeah i'm gonna get served 
and the guy handing out the numbers uh, was my second hero of the day because he he recognized me from the day before and he said, you know, I'm really sorry, you're not going to get served today. And I was like, what? I've got ticket number 40. And he says, well, yeah, yeah, but it's a half day and we've got half the number of staff working today as well. So there's no way we're going to get to you. In fact, there's no way we're going to get to anyone else today. And I'm like, there's 100 people queuing out here. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm quite, I, I remember you from yesterday and I'm taking pity on you. So, you know, be on your way. Uh, but everyone else, I'm going to give them their number and, and, and that's it. Because if I go out there and tell all 100 odd people, by the way, you're not getting served today i'll have a riot on my hands uh, <laughs> he gave me my ticket and i was on my way um uh, and so i ended up making an appointment so by the time i actually had my appointment at the Burgerant, uh, uh it, it, i don't know it was it was about eight weeks after i moved uh so eventually i have my appointment i filled out the paperwork um one of the pieces of advice I was always told was make sure you take a German speaker with you. I didn't do this, of course. Uh, I, I, I lucked out in that I had somebody who was able and willing to speak English. And then I hand over the paperwork and thinking, thinking that, you know, now I'm sitting there with somebody who speaks English, my Bürgeramt ordeal would be over. Uh, oh, no, no. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> the the Brits have this stereotype of the Germans that they are bureaucratic and they are efficient. They are not, however, efficiently bureaucratic. Um, you know, in the Venn diagram, these circles very much do not overlap. So uh, you know, I'm sitting in the office and I hand, uh, I hand the lady the paperwork and she says, you've not filled in this box. And she hands me back the form in a manner as if to say, be on your way, fill in the form and come back later. <laughs> which will be six weeks' time. Uh, and, and, and so I said to her, I don't understand. that This box is empty. There's no note to say what goes in that box. So I left it empty. I assumed it was blank space. And she said, did you not read the accompanying notes? There's a whole separate document I was supposed to read that tells me how to fill in the form that I didn't know about. So it turns out I needed to provide my, my landlord's uh, name and address. Uh, and, you know, I've never met my landlord. I went through an estate agent. I, I have no idea who this person is, and I have no, certainly have no idea what their address was. And so, uh, uh, you know, she says, well, look, just give me a name because, you know, they can't just turf me back out on the street because, um, you know, the document you get from the Burgeramt is, a, is a, a gatekeeper document to all sorts of other things, including health insurance, which you legally must have. So she couldn't just send me back out again. So she says, just give me a name um, in, in a way as if to say, please pretend that you're finding the real name, but write down anything. So I, I go into my phone to read my email. And the problem is my when I struggle to find the name of my landlord, my, my quirky British brain starts trying to think of fake German names that I could put on the on the sheet. And the problem is everything I was coming up with seemed too stereotypical. Like it was totally unbelievable. Right? You know, I'm coming up with names like Helmut Schmidt. Uh, right. <laughs> so I think I eventually found my landlord's actual name. And then just to kind of really like complete the process, she didn't really pay any attention to my actual paperwork that I had filled out. Instead, she, she took one glance at it, saw that I hadn't filled in this name um, but what she was paying attention to was was my my passport, uh, and so the other the other interesting thing I learned, a cultural thing I learned at the Bürgeramt, is that in in uh, uh, Germany uh, to, uh, the doctor title is actually a pretty respected thing, and it's actually considered part of your name, and 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 you know it's. And certainly, in formal conversation, you should expect to be referred to as doctor. Um, and so whenever you have any kind of official paperwork, they make a, a note of the fact that you are a doctor. But because uh, she wasn't paying any attention uh, 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 to the paperwork I'd filled out, but only paying attention to my passport, which doesn't have a title on it, um, when she gave me the final certificate, which had my address on it, boom, I've been stripped of my PhD. I no, I no longer have my doctor title um so it's you know it's a pretty weird uh, process and it's pretty uh, for me as a brit where i could do the same thing in the uk over the phone in 15 minutes 
it was a pretty stressful set of uh, set of weeks trying to trying to just get this one piece of paperwork and then when you have it that's when you, uh, i mean basically once you have this you can then get a bank account and then once you've got a bank account the world is your you know your oyster um, that's when you can get health insurance and your internet connection which inevitably won't work and and everything else that you know requires a requires a bank account Official Berlin city statistics with numbers that are already about two years old, they list the foreign-born population of Berlin at one million strong. And among them, the largest group, the Turkish, are well over 100,000. Then there's, let's see, the Polish at 47,000. Now, several places lower on that list, you've got Americans, 14,000, British, 12,000. It is a long and interesting list that would indicate to me that Berlin at this point should be accustomed to being a destination for people from around the world. Yet from what you describe, Paul, at the registration office, I'm hearing about a policy or a process that seems like a relic from still 20 years ago. Actually, it's, it's even longer than that. Um, I can't remember exactly how far back it goes. Uh, a German friend of mine explained to me, this actually, this is like hundreds of years old. Um, and, and basically, it was to do with um, this kind of uh, presence and land registration was to do with basically the state wanting to know where you were in case they needed you for military purposes. Um, now, my understanding, this goes back hundreds of years and just no one got rid of this rule and people largely forgot why the rule was there. So even as a German citizen, if you're going to in theory, if you're going to be away from your current registered address for more than two weeks, you're supposed to tell the burger aunt, I'm going to be away for more than two weeks, which in theory means if you take a three-week holiday, you're supposed to let them know. Um, so it's just, you know, of course, nobody does. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, apparently this goes back hundreds of years and it was all to do with like, you know, making sure the state knew where they were so they could call you up for military purposes. So it's, it's definitely a very old process. Uh, just no one thought to update it. What, what's interesting actually is that the process to get the paperwork is pretty slow. But once you've gone in there and you have the paperwork, everything happens after that extremely quickly. I, mean, I, I, I was in the Burger Amt one day registering my presence. I had a letter from the tax office the very next day telling me what my tax code was. I mean, <laughs> German bureaucracy <laughs> doesn't necessarily mess around all the time. So I had a tax code the next day, and getting something like a bank account was um, uh, really not no trouble at all. Um, um, only one bank was unable to provide me somebody who spoke good enough English, um, which is, to be honest, I, I mean, I'm kind of in two minds about this. I mean, sure, Berlin is a European capital city, and I should have reasonable expectation of English speaking. But, you know, at the same time, I'm in Germany, so I don't hugely hold it against them. Um, so one bank couldn't give me an English speaker. I spoke to three different banks that, that could. And, you know, shopping around and finding the right bank was really no um, really, you know, not too much trouble. I think if I'd not been in Berlin, things might be different. But in Berlin, you can you can largely get by day to day. Um, uh, you know, you're speaking English. Um, uh, I think the only time I've ever had real trouble with the language barrier, is, but it's actually dealing with my ISP over the phone. The, the people who work in their call center, I've had to call them far too many times. Uh, the people who work in their call center um, don't do not speak uh, very good English at all. But thankfully, I have a German-speaking girlfriend who uh, has, has taken good care of me when it comes to dealing with dealing with my ISP. One of the other areas of concern when you do move your life to a new country has got to be health care and health insurance. I mean, oftentimes on our program, we focus on the social or professional side of moving to Berlin. But let's stay practical today, uh, if you can help us with that. Uh, Germany has what is called a universal multi-payer health system, which sounds all-encompassing, accessible, but I'd like to hear your experience. The, tell us about the process of getting health insurance. It's actually really easy. You're, you're legally required to have health insurance. Uh, and so um, in some respects, uh, as the person receiving the health care, it's not that much different from the NHS in the UK. Um, I, you know, as a UK taxpayer, um, uh, I paid taxes, this funded a health service. Um, and if I fell ill, I could go to the doctor and get help. Uh, in many respects, it's not too dissimilar in Germany. Um, 
you pay uh, 15.5%, roughly, sometimes a little bit more or less, um, for various reasons, um, out of your pay packet. And you are then entitled to go to the doctor and get help. Where things are radically different is that in the UK, you have the one healthcare provider. There's the National Health Service. Uh, in Germany, you have multiple competing healthcare providers. Um, so having that internal market is great. Um, the state basically dictates um, a basic level of care which the um, the, the healthcare providers, the health insurers, have to provide for that fifteen and a half percent of your salary. Um, but then, of course, they have to compete with each other. So some are better, for example. I don't know, some are better because they um, are providers of, like they provide extra care for, for cancer patients or maybe one is better because if you are hospitalized, they give you more payout per day. So there's little sort of little differences between them all. But basically they all provide the same thing because the government mandates that they do. So they all compete on sort of little differences in order to win people's business. But it's it's always 15.5% there about your salary. It's handled through payroll. Um, unlike in the NHS where you can just turn up to the doctor, um, I guess it's slightly different in that you have to have an ID card, which, um, uh, you know, lets the doctor know which health insurance provider um, that they have to to bill for for the time um, um, but otherwise no money changes hands or anything like that it's all just handled between the insurance provider and the healthcare provider uh, so it's all pretty simple but that's that's the easy version of things so that's that's what they consider to be like public health care in, in germany which for me as a brit seems weird because i have multiple competing uh, health insurers that to me seems more like a private scheme at least by british standards but the concept of private health care also does exist in germany and actually that's the kind of policy i have um, and the reason for this is uh, there comes a point where 15 and a half percent of your salary is actually a huge amount of money um, so you are able to opt out um, of the um, the public healthcare scheme, the fifteen and a half percent scheme, for a private policy um, if you meet certain conditions. Um, and largely, these boil down to like: does the government? There, there seem to be intangible. No one was ever to give me a strong definition of at what point you're allowed to opt out but it largely boils down to if you can show that you have fully understood the ramifications of opting out um because um that 15 and a half percent of your your paycheck is fixed but of course as a private uh privately insured person um as you get older the premium will go up because of it, it, it then acts more like a normal insurance so of course you get older the risk increases so the premium goes up um they do things like so you know i'm i'm overweight and because i'm overweight that increases the number of diseases i could possibly have and so my premium goes up so basically, you have to show that you understand um, the ramifications of opting out. Um, one of the ramifications is you're not allowed to opt back into the the, uh, um, the public system. Um, certain things stopped getting covered. So I think, for example, um, uh, if my wife or my partner or whoever in my life um, ends up getting uh, pregnant, the cost of their pregnancy, if they're under the uh, public system will no longer be covered by the public system um, because because her pregnancy was caused by my actions as a privately insured person. Uh, so all of a sudden, like prenatal care, the birth itself, whatever, um, doesn't get covered by the public system. And whether or not it is covered by my private policy is, you know, a matter for policy by policy. Um, so it's uh, you know it's 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 very different from the UK in terms of you've got these competing providers and in terms of day to day access the public system is exactly the same private system is pretty different however so getting getting it's really easy um, I, I did a little bit of shopping around um, you know the the, the major providers uh, were all. As we say in English, they're much of a muchness. They're all pretty much the same. Um, uh, when it came to private provision, uh, you know, I got personal recommendations from different people. Um, but because you must have insurance, um, actually signing up to it, once you have this document from the Boga Amp that says, you know, hey, I can prove my, my address, 
you know, actually, actually getting hands on uh, uh, insurance is really quite easy. The different insurers all have offices. Uh, in my case, actually, the the insurers, because I was signing up for private care, the insurers were actually willing to come to my place of work to have meetings with me. Um, so, so signing up for it was actually pretty easy. So for those keeping score at home, we've got the physical arrival in Berlin, no problem, uh, registration, big problem. Uh, but once that's done health insurance, even the bank account, it sounds like easy peasy. Uh, it would seem that after that, it's all smooth sailing when it comes to setting up your life in this new city. Uh, I can't imagine there being any other problem with, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe getting internet. <laughs> oh, seriously, after that point, uh, uh, most things were, were smooth. I, I, I was caught out by a few things which were, it's not that things didn't go smoothly so much as things were just strange compared to what I was used to in the UK. But yeah, you know, once you, once you have that piece of paperwork that improves your address, getting a bank account, easy, getting health insurance, easy, getting an ISP, um, easy. Um, the, you know, the, the ISP is actually the interesting one because the, the thing that I found strange was, was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living in, uh, uh, you know, uh, pretty close to the center of, of Berlin, you know, European capital city. Uh, and I, I go to, you know, the various different uh, telecoms companies to find out about, um, uh, about, you know, what kind of internet provision I can get in my flat. You know, and they all told me the same thing. I could get 18 megabit, one eight megabit ADSL. You know, I, I moved to Berlin from a city in Scotland called uh, Stirling. Not Edinburgh, not Glasgow. City called Stirling has a population of about 41,000. Um, city in, you know, legal status only. Uh, and I had 100 megabit VDSL, right? <laughs> you know, I, I, Right now, I'm, now I move. Uh, now I move to, uh, to to Berlin, and I'm told you know the best you're going to get is 18 megabit ADSL, uh, which to me was just like you know it was just crazy. Uh, so this was really this was this for me was really a, a weird uh, thing, and, and I, I don't know if if I had an effect or whether it was just good timing, uh, but you know when I finally had this paperwork from the Burger app and I go and sign up for 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 internet. 18 megabit ADSL was it. Uh, and then about a month later, um, I, I start getting uh, uh, letters from a, a third-party ISP saying, you know, hey, do you, want, do you want VDSL? We can totally do that for you. And so I went back to my ISP and said, hey, like these other people are from VDSL now. And, you know, boom, there it was. Do you, want, do you want a 50 megabit? Do you want a 100 megabit? So I think I was just kind of lucky with timing. Uh, but yeah, when I first arrived, it was 18 megabits only, and I had no idea what, you know, how I was going to get through the day. Because sometimes, you know, I work in software engineering, and you know, sometimes I'm working from home. Uh, and I, I, was, I was wondering how I was going to cope. <laughs> As I listen to your story, uh, especially when it comes to the part about what you really wanted out of life in Berlin, the work-life balance, the exposure to more art, and just really interesting things in daily life uh, makes me wonder at this point paul have you been able to find that balance and those things that you were looking for yeah uh, joe it, it was really easy because i i i had been coming here so often um the the difficulty when moving to for, i think for anyone when they move to a new city is you have to go through the process of making a whole new friendship group and uh, that's you know having that friendship group as a sort of the gatekeeper to having the sort of fun aspects in your social life and i already had that um when i when i moved here i i had a ready existing you know, very large group of friends in, in the city. So I was very lucky, actually. Having that group of friends was one of the things that made it easy for me to make the decision to move here. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person who who, who really needs that that balance. You know, I'm not a relentless uh, workaholic. Um, the, the, the nature of my work, I'm a company director. It's not a nine-to-five job, and it's certainly not a 40-hour a week job it's it's uh you know it's you know frequently way more than that but when i stop work i stop work uh and if i'm sitting in the office and uh you know i'm i'm getting up like just uh, uh tuesday this week i did not get up from my desk at the office until 9 p.m 
And uh, the nice thing about being in Berlin is I get up from the the desk at nine. I say, I'm done for the day. That's it. I switch off. I'm one of these kind of people who can just switch off. And my journey home across town takes uh, 45 minutes from door to door. Well, the journey, in fact, never actually takes 45 minutes because between my office and home, there is that theater showing that play. There is that street artist doing a demonstration. There is that band playing in that bar. There is that jazz club where I have no idea who's going to be there, but I know if I turn up, there will be some good jazz. There's just a million and one things going on inside Berlin. And it's just, it's, it's one of these strange situations where you stop caring about the opportunity cost because no matter which one thing you choose to do, there's 999,999 other things. Um, you can't possibly do it all. So you just, you stop caring about the choice and just, um, you know, you just enjoy it. And this is, this is great. I love that. I, you know, I never come straight home. There's always something to do on the way, um, big or small. Um, which means, you know, it's it's yeah, I, I it's easy for me to to be the kind of guy who who just switches off when he leaves his desk because there is always something to distract me. There's always something to enjoy. I was, actually, I was talking to my girlfriend about this on there. She she works, uh, you know, not too far away from where my office is. We were traveling back together uh, uh, just tonight, and I, I made the observation the the uh, trip to the office, the forty five minutes it takes for me to get to the office is really easy because I've just had breakfast. I'm not particularly hungry. Uh, so I don't have that kind of, you know, uh, that kind of, you know, physical distraction. Um, and, and, and my journey involves getting on a train where, um, uh, my point of reference, I have to sort of backtrack. My point of reference was when I used to live in the London area. Um, if I had to go into the city first thing in the morning, I was on a very packed train, you know, standing room only, uh, with a bunch of very grumpy people, um, who, none of whom were talking to each other, but you got the vibe. It was because none of them really wanted to talk to each other. Um, uh, you know, yeah, pretty typical, but now, you, you know, fast forward to my life here now in, in Berlin and, uh, you know, sure. I get on a train. It's not overpacked. Um, uh, the, the people sure are not really talking to each other, but you don't get this vibe of, they don't really want to talk to each other. They're just quiet. Um, and it's really nice. You know, I, I can look out the window and there will be, you, you know, there's always something to look at in Berlin. It, it, it quite often varies between just, you know, cheap and nasty graffiti, but it can go all the way up to proper, genuine, bona fide street art. And you just have to look out the side of the window and to find it. And if you don't find the street art, you will see the architectural differences between the east and the west in the city. Or if you don't notice the architectural differences between the east and the west, at least you will notice, you know, the the, the phenomenally uh, uh, basic skyline of the city. I mean, all of Berlin is five-story buildings, basically, apart from in the very west and the very east. Um, most of the downtown city, right, it's all five-story buildings. So, you know, it's, it has this beautifully flat skyline and then boom, there's the Fernsehturm, the big TV tower, and then and the other big hotel that's in downtown. You know, there's just something nice to look at on the journey to the office. On the way back, um, the problem is I have the, destruction, the, the distraction of being hungry. Uh, so, you know, immediately I'm not necessarily enthusiastic about taking the 45 minute journey home because I probably want to stop and eat. And if I stop and eat, like I said, there is that bar, there is that poetry reading, there is that, the band playing, you know, either in the bar or on the street corner, there's always something to do. Um, and whether that takes, uh, an extra 45 minutes or a whole hour and a half, I don't care. You know, I, I, I get home whenever I need to get home and if it needs be, I work from home the next morning because I get up a little bit late. I guess I'm lucky and then I have a job that kind of accommodates me doing that. As an active contributor in the KDE community, as well as the FSFE community, uh, not to mention you're also a fellow at the Open Forum Academy. I mean, it's clear that you have this large network of online friends and acquaintances, many of whom actually are probably located in Berlin. Uh, I wonder, did these online relationships, when you arrived in the city, translate to an instant offline community, uh, friends in your new life? No, yes and no. Um, uh, a lot of my motivation for uh, moving to, to Germany was to largely be closer to free software. 
I, uh, you know, when you, when you, uh, the first time I contributed to free software in Scotland was the, the late nineties. Uh, and this was done, uh, from my childhood home over a, you know, 36 K modem. Uh, and you know, I'm downloading code from, from God knows where, and I'm uploading code to, you know, I was writing some Python to, you know, God knows where. And, and the whole thing was very intangible. And I was just dealing with, uh, you know, people over the internet, like, most people do when they first get into free software and the idea that there were people to physically meet and there was a whole community to study and enjoy was something I just, you know, learned over time. And, you know, I've been involved with free software since the nineties, met loads of people either physically or offline, but to physically meet them, I always had to go somewhere. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up this, this, this city, Sterling, I mentioned before, I, I grew up in a, in a town a lot smaller, um, not too far from Sterling, but you're really in the Scottish countryside at this point. And no one in my, my town knew or understood free software. And heck, if I went to Sterling, very few people there would. Um, and so, you know, I, I met free software people by traveling to Belgium. You know, I went to Fosdem every year. And, and that's where I would physically meet free software people. Or I would go to uh, the KDE conference. KDE is the project I'm now most tangibly associated with. And, you know, I'd, I'd go to their annual conference and that is where I would meet people. And, you know, my, my I wasn't doing it deliberately, but through the stuff I was doing, my, my profile got raised in the UK. Um, that became even easier when I was living in London. Um, I was part of a group of people who created the British Computer Society's special interest group in open source. And that gave me a lot of access to, to meeting people who actually worked in free software. Uh, but when I left London and went back to Scotland, um, um, kind of ironically, it was actually to set up a free software company. Um, but the one thing this did was was put me back again, back out of touch with the, the sort of physical connection with free software people. I always had to travel somewhere to meet them, and and you know after being back in Scotland for almost a decade, it was like you know enough's enough. And so when you move to Berlin, uh, KDE EV has its office here. Um, the FSFE have their office here. Uh, loads of projects have community members here. There are loads of companies involved. Um, you know, it's, there's a very vibrant local free software community that is very easy to tap into. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of my KDE friends who I already knew um, on and offline were already here. But through them and through, you know, just generally, I mean, just even simple things like just using Meetup, there are free software related meetups every week. You just turn up and you meet new people. Um, so Berlin's the kind of place where it's just very easy to get integrated into the, 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 the sort of the meat space community because there's just so much of it. But what I found uh, kind of amusing actually is the same problem of, um, people who are in your physical neighborhood you don't get to see them unless you go somewhere else unless you sort of you, you, that still exists uh, you know I, I was at Fosdem you know just a couple of weeks back and uh, um, there's this guy I mean Fosdem I love because there's a, a whole huge group of people that I see there I don't see them anywhere else I don't meet them any other time you know uh, 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 you know a, a friend that I and he really is a friend and we, we, we talk once a year as a guy called Niels he works on PHPBB I, I see I see him once a year at Fosdem, and you know we have this bit of a catch-up session. And then in the middle of the, uh, in uh, our annual catch-up, he points out the fact that he's just moved to Berlin, and I'm like, no way! <laughs> right, that would, that would have been truly embarrassing. <laughs> you don't live in Prenzlauer, do you? Um, so it's just you know th th that problem still exists, and I think it's just because we're so used to dealing with each other through IRC, through through you know Git commit messages that uh, you know sometimes you forget that there is a real world. You, you, the person you're dealing with might actually be right next door. Free software communities were your focus as an academic, and I wonder, could you introduce us to your research and what your goals were? Uh, what I was looking into was. Uh, back in the, the sort of early noughties, the European Commission started uh, doing a lot of uh, research funding into uh, metrics. 
and uh, coder metrics and other kind of software process related metrics. And they were also doing some interesting work around um, free software in general, I guess, largely for policy forming reasons. And um, I wasn't, that was by no means the first um, uh, person to be involved with um, community metrics, but I was, um, you know, I wasn't the first, but I was certainly one of the first. And, you know, at the time, at the time, um, people like John O'Bacon were really raising the profile of community management as an activity. Um, and, you know, if you read um, Jono's book on community management, there is a whole section on, you know, metrics and measurement and dealing with those metrics and understanding what you need to measure and why. Um, and it's, for me, this was a really fascinating section of his book. Um, and I like about it because it's it's more like classic management. It's it's not you know it's not master manipulation of Twitter, which I think is the sort of common perception of what community community management is. This is real, proper, actual management, understanding your community and making sure your community is productive. And, and yet, somehow, people don't have this vision uh, when they think of community managers. They really do think of you know social media manipulators. And um, what I wanted to do at the time when I started my PhD, um, and this was you know, part of this European-funded research, was to say, okay, most free software projects at the time had a problem, which was they were switching their major tool, uh, in this case it was their version control system, without really thinking about what the ramifications of that would be. Um, what happens when I switch from subversion to Git? Uh, or what happens when I move from any centralized version control system to a distributed version control system? Um, this has massive implications um, for um, what happens with inside your community structure. Um, but no one thought about this. No one really particularly cared about this. Um, people did it because it was cool. Um, there's, there is loads of cool reasons for, for moving to distributed version control, absolutely. But <clears throat> there are other sides to it as well. Um, or maybe there's even more cool reasons than the projects realized. But no one was studying. No one was studying um, the community to see what would happen to it when you when you made a change. And that's, you know, back then um, when I was doing my PhD, so sort of 2006, um, was it 2006 was it? No, 2000, 2004 to 2009 was a five year period of my PhD. Um, was a really fashionable time to, to, to switch from subversion to, to Git. Uh, and so, um, I wasn't just looking at KDE, um, but I also looked at, uh, parts of the known project, um, for various reasons. Um, I looked at, um, heck, what else did I look at? Uh, oh, the Plone community. Um, I mentioned before, you know, the first free software project I contributed to, it was the Zope Plone ecosystem way back then. Um, so, um, I studied a variety of things all related to community. A switch of version control system was just one of them. Um, uh, and, and, and yeah, that's, that's really kind of what I was fascinated by was, was decisions that communities make readily and what they actually do to the community itself um, is really the common theme. So back then it was about uh, switching version control system. Now I'm spending um, what time I do have um, looking into, um, so my work these days is heavily involved with the Qt project. So I'm spending time looking into what happened to Qt every time it changed hands, every time it's, it's uh, copyright ownership changed hands. So it went from Trolltech to Nokia to Digia and now to the Qt company. You know, I keep, I keep, uh, you know, a track of, you know, what is the result of this? Um, uh, inside KDE, uh, now we have made the switch from subversion to Git. I'm, I'm, I, I like to look and see, okay, what are the ramifications of this? What can I look as being the sort of the measurable output of having made the switch? And that's the kind of thing I, you know, I, um, it's nice that my, my day to day job is, is free software and I get to keep a handle on Qt and keep a handle on uh, KDE. 
Um, but of course, I, I don't have the, the time to do the same kind of in-depth analysis as I once used to do. You know, but I do what I can every now and then. Finally today, I, I do recommend people go to your website and read some of your great articles. But it also makes me wonder, uh, your domain, Baggerspion, please explain that one. Uh, there's a there's a, a guy called Ben Schott, who's a British... A comedian and writer who wrote uh, he wrote a dictionary of made up German words to describe everyday um, like so everyday phenomenon which we don't have a word for in the English language. Uh, and one of these words which I immediately took a liking to was this word Baggerspion. Um, so, so literally, it's digger spy. Uh, bagger is a digger, like a JCB, and Spion is a spy. Uh, and so, the everyday phenomenon being described is. You, you know, when you walk down a street and you see a building site that's all boarded up um, and you see a little crack in the fence and you can't help but look through the crack in the fence to see what they're building, um, that is Bagashbion. Uh, and I love this work because that's basically what I do with free software communities. I look in from the outside to see what's going on inside. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's where Bagashbion came from. Uh, Paul, there's always more to talk about, but I was really glad we could get to speak today and go over some of those less discussed steps and, and, and also the obstacles when it comes to making that move that you have successfully made. Uh, we wish you all the best, and I do look forward to speaking again in the future. You're welcome. It's great. Anytime. Paul Adams is a free software company director, a community manager based in Berlin. You can read his work at baggerspion.net or follow him on Twitter at the real Paul Adams. And that does it for this edition of Source Code Berlin. Thanks to all those who have emailed or commented on the program via the website, Twitter, and Facebook. One way you could also help the program to get heard is to leave a comment or a review in the iTunes store. Let us and others know what you like or what you don't like or why you listen. Uh, rumor has it this does help a little bit with making the, well, the podcast look less lonely in the directory. Source Code Berlin is a Wikimedia Deutschland podcast. Follow us at sourcecode.berlin or follow us on Facebook, Source Code Berlin or on Twitter at SRC Code Berlin. This podcast is published under a CCBY SA 4.0 license and edited by me. Until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Renderu. Thanks for listening. We are.